Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our video cast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. Hello, my name is Grant Averett, and I am a CA3 resident at the University of Kentucky. In this podcast, I'll be talking about left ventricular assist devices, or LVADs. I will provide a brief overview of what they are, when and why they are used, and considerations and complications of caring for an LVAD patient in the ICU. So, what is an LVAD and who gets one? LVADs are, in short, devices that pump blood from the left ventricle into the ascending aorta in a continuous as opposed to pulsatile fashion, offloading some degree of work from the left ventricle. They can be placed either percutaneously, such as an impella, or surgically. We will be focusing on surgically implanted LVADs. These are portable devices which patients can be discharged with following their inpatient stay after implantation. LVADs are typically reserved for patients with New York Heart Association Class 3 or 4 heart failure, meaning they have marked limitations such as fatigue, dyspnea, palpitations, etc., with minimal activity, and may also have symptoms at rest. So these are sick patients. Contraindications, both relative and absolute to LVAD placement, include things like active infection, liver disease, and coagulopathy, severe renal disease, malignancy with poor prognosis, dementia, or severe psychiatric illness, and poor social support. However, the decision to implant an LVAD is is a complicated one, and there are no clear-cut criteria. Broadly speaking, they can be implanted for one of four reasons. One, bridge to transplant for patients who are, quote, too sick to wait for a transplant due to acute or acute on chronic heart failure or have contraindications to a transplant that are expected to be transient and resolve at some point in the future. Two, um, LVADs can be destination therapy for patients who are likely permanently ineligible for a heart transplant and will have the LVAD for the remainder of their life. Three, bridge to myocardial recovery. In this case, the offloading of work provided by the LVAD is expected to allow the heart to recover from various temporary processes. Four, bridge to decision for when the best long-term option for a patient is unclear and more time is needed to make a decision. Next, I'll briefly talk about the structure of LVADs. There have been several different types of LVADs in the years since their introduction, but four basic parts are involved with the current generation of devices. One, the pump itself, which is surgically implanted via an open-heart operation involving cardiopulmonary bypass and is connected to tubing which delivers the blood to the ascending aorta. Two, the drive line, a tunneled percutaneous line which passes through the skin of the abdomen and attaches to an external power source. Three, the power supply, usually in the form of rechargeable batteries. And four, the controller, which runs the pump and provides messages and alarms to assist in operating the LVAD. Next, we'll move on to some numbers associated with LVADs and what it might mean if they are either low or high. Note that this is intended to be a basic overview and there are intricacies that are not covered here. One, revolutions per minute. This is set by the provider and determines the pump flow rate. It is the one independent variable among those that I'm about to list, and thus any abnormality in RPMs is likely iatrogenic. 
to your flow. The flow is the continuous flow rate in liters per minute of the pump, typically around four to six, individualized for each patient, taking into account their necessary cardiac output, any blood that meet and any blood that may be ejected by the left ventricle due to residual cardiac function. It is directly dependent on the patient's preload and afterload in addition to RPMs. If you have low flow, this is almost always a volume issue. For example, you could have hypovolemia due to excessive diuresis or bleeding or RV failure leading to inadequate LV preload, tamponade, etc. In these instances, administering volume should help alleviate the problem or at least temporize. One exception to this is if the cause of LV hypovolemia is RV failure, in which case additional volume could exacerbate the problem. Low flow could also be caused by increased afterload, such as hypertensive crisis, although this is less common. Of note, low flows can lead to something called suction or suck-down events. This occurs when reduced preload leads to increased negative pressure in the LV, causing part of the LV wall to suck over the inlet cannula. The pump responds by alarming and decreasing RPMs temporarily to release the suction. Suction events can also cause arrhythmias due to irritation of the LV myocardium, so this should be high on the differential for any arrhythmia in a patient with an LVAD. High flows are often due to decreased afterload, for example, sepsis, anaphylaxis, or medication-induced. In this case, you would address this by treating the underlying cause and or administering vasopressors to increase the patient's SVR. Moving on to the next number, uh, that is power, which is the electrical power expressed in watts um, and is the product of voltage and current, usually ranges from about 4 to 7. It varies with flow and RPMs. If you're experiencing low power, this is usually a device problem, and you should check the device's power source. If you are experiencing high power, this usually represents pump thrombosis on the rotor. You would treat this with therapeutic anticoagulation, which all LVAD patients will typically be on anyway, and may require a pump exchange, which would be an operation. Four, the pulsatility index represents the flow pulse through the LVAD pump related to the heart's native function as well as preload. Higher pulsatility in index indicates more native cardiac function and higher filling pressures and vice versa. Normally is normal is roughly 3 to 7. A low pulsatility index indicates worsening native ventricular function versus hypovolemia, so you would just need to assess clinically for the more likely cause and treat appropriately, whether that's inotropy versus volume administration versus increasing pump RPMs. And high pulsatility index is likely due to recovery of LV function versus lead damage, so that's also something that you would just have to assess clinically. And one last number to consider in LVAD patients is the INR. Unlike the other numbers, it will obviously not be displayed on the controller, but it is important to monitor in LVAD patients due to the need for lifelong anticoagulation, which is due to the risk of pump thrombosis. The manufacturer recommended goal for the HeartMate 3, which is the only LVAD currently being implanted, is 2 to 3, though many institutions have a lower goal because the HeartMate 3 has demonstrated a lower risk of thrombosis than previous devices. So that's about it um, for the basics of numbers on the LVAD monitor. Next, I'll talk about an important topic in LVAD management, which is the unresponsive patient. Focus remains on ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation, like any other patient, though there are a few modifications and specificities unique to the LVAD patient. 
Upon finding an LVAD patient unresponsive, you should immediately call a mechanical circulatory support code, ensure that the airway is being maintained, and assess the VAD, meaning ensure the power supply has not failed, ensure there are no loose cables or connections, and look at the controller for any alarms. Assuming nothing is discovered in this initial assessment, further management depends on the presence or absence of the typical LVAD hum, which is a noise that the LVAD makes that you can hear just standing in the room. So if there's no hum present, then the LVAD is likely not operational. In that situation, you immediately check for a pulse. If there is no pulse, begin ACLS and consider emergent ECMO cannulation if indicated. If there is a pulse pres present, then you should assess the patient's blood pressure. Often this would require an arterial line as LVAD patients are often, do not often have very pulsatile pressures. Um, assess the heart rhythm, shocking if needed, consider administering volume, inotropes, vasopressors, etc., and attempt to troubleshoot the LVAD and figure out why there is no hum as there's likely to be a problem. So if there is a hum present, then the first thing to do is check for the flow of the VAD. If the flow is less than 2.5 liters per minute, um, then you should check for a pulse. And if, and if the pulse is not present, begin ACLS and consider emergent ECMO cannulation, similar to if there was no hum and you experienced the same situation. Um, so if you do hear a hum and the flow is more than 2.5 liters per minute, or the flow is less than 2.5 liters per minute, but there is a pulse, then in that case, you check a blood pressure um, via an arterial line, check in tidal CO2. Um, and then if your MAP in this situation is greater than 50 and your in tidal CO2 is greater than 20, then you should assess for reversible causes of non-responsiveness. Um, but if your MAP is less than 50 and or your in tidal is less than 20, um, then you should assess the heart rhythm, shocking if needed, consider volume, inotropes, vasopressors, etc., similar to above. Um, this is a somewhat convoluted topic to explain without a visual aid, so I would recommend searching online for an algorithm to guide you through this process as well. There are several available, including one from the University of Kentucky, which I used as a basis for this section of the podcast. Finally, I would like to walk through three related hypothetical clinical scenarios that will utilize some of the information covered in this podcast to hopefully illustrate how you can apply it. Let's consider three patients with undifferentiated shock. In each instance, I'll give you progressively more information, and I want you to think about the patient and their clinical picture and what you think is going on based on the information. The first patient has low VAD flow rates, which are improved by a passive leg raise. They are having suction events. They have a low pulsatility index. A transthoracic echo demonstrates a non-dilated right ventricle. The CVP is low. Their extremities are cold. Urine output is reduced. The SVO2 is low. The lactate is elevated. And the capillary refill time is prolonged. What type of shock do you think this patient has? So, the low VAD flows, the suction events, and the low pulsatility index together should point you toward an underfilled left ventricle. The passive leg raise also demonstrates volume responsiveness, so this patient likely has hypovolemic shock. The second patient has low VAD flow rates, is having suction events similar to the first patient, the TTE demonstrates a dilated right ventricle. The CVP is elevated. 
the pulmonary artery catheter demonstrates elevated PA pressures, their extremities are cold, urine output is reduced, peripheral and pulmonary edema is present, the SVO2 is low, and lactate is elevated. What type of shock do you think this patient has? So this patient's low VAD flow rates and suction events initially appear similar to the previous patient. However, the signs of peripheral and pulmonary edema, in addition to right heart dilation on the TTE, would be more suggestive of cardiogenic or obstructive shock. The final patient has high VAD flows. The TTE demonstrates non-dilated and hyperdynamic right ventricle. Their extremities are warm. Urine output is reduced. Capillary refill is brisk. SVO2 is normal to elevated, and their lactate level is elevated. What type of shock do you think this patient has? Immediately, this patient's high VAD flows separate him or her from the previous two patients. This should make you consider a low SVR state. Combined with the high SVO2, warm extremities, and rising lactate, this points to likely vasodilatory shock. I hope these examples and this podcast overall have been helpful. LVADs are an extensive topic that I could not hope to fully cover, so I encourage you to continue learning about them on your own. Thank you for your time. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to us via email at learnonthego at uky.edu. Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well, on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.